On this Easter Sunday, I have been holding in my heart that today is also, this Easter Sunday is also uh, the anniversary of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination on April 4th, 1968. Let me share my screen with you to say just a little bit more. Dr. King was only 39 years old when he died. If he hadn't been killed, he might still be with us today. If so, he would be only 92 years old. 53 years later, there are ways in which Dr. King's dream has become more of a reality. And there are also nightmarish reminders, like the current trial of a white police officer for murdering George Floyd, of how far we have to go to build the better world that we dream about. Along these lines, our intern minister, Jen, and I have been co-leading an 11-week study on Tuesday evenings here at UUCF. We've got two more remaining uh, of widening the circle of concern. It's a report from the Unitarian Universalist Association's Commission on Institutional Change. So not individual change we need to make, but what are the institutional changes we need to make to create the culture change we dream about. This report offers us many recommendations of how we might give ourselves the best, best chance of becoming the more diverse, multicultural, beloved community that we dream about. For many decades, we Unitarian Universalists have aspired to be more anti-racist, more multicultural, more anti-oppressive. And we've been quite successful in rejecting what we might call stage one in that process, denouncing conscious intentional white supremacy. I think it's really clear that we are not aligned with organizations like the KKK. But too often we've stopped there and we're increasingly aware that rejecting what we're against is insufficient to create what we're for. Stage two is becoming more aware of all the ways that majority white institutions can unconsciously perpetuate white supremacy culture. And one of the many ways this shows up is the tendency to center the experiences of white people and to default to white cultural norms. So stage three calls us to be consciously and intentionally multicultural, which includes centering the experiences of historically oppressed groups. Many organizations also make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, we held one anti-racism workshop, or we released one statement about multiculturalism or denouncing something racist, but then they just revert right back to the way things have always been done, which is kind of a, mostly a European monoculture. To make a long-term difference at the level of genuine cultural change, we need systems and structures. We have to put new scaffolding in place or we just keep like drifting back to the old way. We need new systems and structures that keep us regularly, accountably practicing anti-racism and multiculturalism. Otherwise, again, the default is to slip back into stage two, an unconscious, unintentional perpetuation of white supremacy culture. And here's some good news on this Easter Sunday as we look for signs of hope and renewal and rebirth. I'm so grateful that the UUA has spent three years researching best practices of how we can together co-create uh, a more multicultural beloved community. And it's not that this new report is perfect. Of course it isn't. As you've heard me quote before, we are saved from perfection, 
You are saved from perfection. I am saved from perfection. Perfection does not exist. I am sure that new and better insights will be forthcoming down the road. But for now, there's some incredibly valuable recommendations in this report on widening the circle of concern. And I look forward to continuing on that journey with all of you. So on this Easter Sunday, on the anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, it feels like a significant occasion to spend some time reflecting on the life and legacy of James Cone, known as the father of Black liberation theology. Dr. King's death was a powerful turning point in Cone's life. In the, in the wake of James Cone's death in 2018, his Black liberation theology continues to have powerful reverberations in our country, particularly through the Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock, the recently elected United States Senator from Georgia, who is one of Cone's protégés. And in the terms of the recent UUA report, Cone's life and legacy also offer a powerful and profound example of what it looks like to live into these ever-widening circles of care, concern, and compassion. So to set the, set the stage, come with me on just a brief trip backward, and then we're going to go into the present and future. I've been reading about James Cone for about two decades, and I want to be honest with you that one of the reasons his Black liberation theology means so much to me is that I was raised in an all-white Southern Baptist congregation in the Midlands of South Carolina. Growing up, I was usually at church two, sometimes three or more times a week for various events and classes, etc., and although I remain so grateful on the one hand for many people and wonderful people, many um, loving aspects of that congregation, I also realize in retrospect in ways that were not obvious to me at the time that one of many serious problems at that and many other congregations was a complete failure to wrestle with the legacy of racism among Southern Baptists. Most glaringly, I never learned that the Southern Baptist Convention was literally formed was birthed, came into existence in the mid-19th century for one major reason, to make sure that Baptist congregations in the southern United States, and especially their missionaries, could teach that the Bible supported slavery. So even though, I mean, I don't think it's just because I missed that day. <laughs> I think it's that we just didn't talk about it. Um, I never learned any of that history until I took a Baptist history class in seminary. And my experience of not learning that history, it's really pretty common for folks growing up Southern Baptist. If you grew up Southern Baptist and learned that history about the real origins of the Southern Baptist Convention, I would be very interested to know. Uh, previously, there was a major network of Baptist congregations in the country called the Triennial Convention because it met every three years. But in 1844, that convention declared it would not approve funding for any Christian missionary who was an enslaver. And there was also saying we're not going to fund missionaries who teach um, that slavery is compatible with Christianity. As a result, the very next year, Baptists in the South broke away from the um, Triennial Convention in 1845 to form a new denomination that would advocate for the compatibility of Christianity and the enslavement of human beings. They called this denomination the Southern Baptist Convention. A similar dynamic played out in many other parts of the Christian tradition in this country. I do not have time to go in depth. I'll give you two quick examples. In 1845, there was a similar schism between Northern and Southern Methodists over slavery. I know many Methodists did not learn this history. Some of them did. Uh, we could consider Roman Catholicism. Here in Maryland, in the late 18th century, about one-fifth of Catholics, so about 
20% of all Catholics in Maryland in the late 1700s were enslaved human beings owned by white Catholics or white Catholic institutions. Likewise, during the Great Migration, so some of you have read that powerful book by Isabella Wilkerson, The Warmth of Other Suns. During the Great Migration, when many African-Americans moved from the South to the North, the Catholic Church often modified its policy of encouraging Catholics just attend. It's really important to attend the church closest to your home. They instead segregated all African-Americans in one or more congregations to avoid racial integration. There is so much more to say about all of this. If you're curious about the details, I recommend the excellent, accessible book titled White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. It's by Robert Jones. He's a religion scholar, does PhD at Emory. He's the founding director of the Public Religion Research Institute. So they collect data and do polling. So having laid out this history, it may be helpful just to briefly bring back in that three-stage process that we started with. As Jones's book details the devastating truth about that first stage of conscious, intentional white supremacy is that while it may seem obvious here in the 21st century um, to mainstream white Christians today that slavery, segregation, overt de declarations of white supremacy are antithetical to the teachings of Jesus, such a conviction is recent and only partially conscious for most white American Christians and churches. For nearly all of American history, the Jesus conjured by most white congregations was not merely indifferent to the status quo of racial inequality. That's kind of what I grew up with. Instead, that Jesus that was taught about in the 19th century demanded white supremacy, demanded its defense, demanded its preservation as part of the natural, divinely ordained order of things. Famously, I went to Furman University, my beloved alma mater, Richard Furman, the founder of Furman, the first president, wrote a terrible, terrible letter publicly defending the Bible and supporting slavery. Most historically white congregations have at best progressed to the early stages of part two, unconscious, unintentional pe um, per perpetuation of white supremacy culture. So with this history in our minds, on our hearts, let's begin to consider how the life and legacy of James Cone, the father of Black liberation theology, can inspire us to more boldly widen our circles of concern to that third stage of conscious, intentional multiculturalism. James Cone was born in 1938 in Arkansas, meaning that he grew up in a racially segregated town. Indeed, in the early 1950s, just a few years before Brown versus the Board of Education mandated um, school integration. So Cone was a young teenager. His father sued the local school district to try to get them to integrate. His father was threatened with lynching. Keep that in mind for later. If you're curious to learn more, I recommend Cone's short and accessible memoir, Said I Wasn't Going to Tell Nobody. For our purposes, I'll limit myself to just a few significant turning points in his life. In the early 1960s, this is the heart of the civil rights movement, when nonviolent sit-ins um, and the freedom rides were erupting all over the South and often being met with white supremacist violence. During that time, Cone was one of few, a few black seminarians attending Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in Illinois. At that time, like in that, fir that First Baptist Church of Florence, South Carolina, where I grew up, at that time, race was barely mentioned officially in the curriculum. And one day a, in a church history class, Cone found himself unexpectedly yelling at his you know, really respected um, white professor. He said, 
you have been lecturing for days about the violence of Catholics against Protestants in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe. And you have said nothing about the violence of white Protestants against black Christians today in the South right now. His professor did not take it well. <laughs> Later after reconciling, you know, kind of one-on-one instead of kind of being called out in front of everyone, it's really hard to read what Cohn writes next. He confesses, I put my mask back on of the happy black man and I saved my degree. That's it's tough. That's what he felt like he had to do to survive in the white supremacy culture of the time. But it's also a significant inflection point in Cohn becoming more conscious of this cognitive dissonance between what he was learning in school and the reality of the contemporary world he was living in as a black man. Because previously he had been just sort of aspirational. His greatest aspiration was sort of con- to conform, to succeed in white culture. And that was becoming increasingly assimilating, was becoming increasingly dissatisfactory. Nevertheless, in 1965, Cohn went on to earn a PhD at Northwestern University. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on the doctrine of man and the theology of Karl Barth, a very difficult white theologian to read. Ironically, though, after completely proving himself according to the standards of white Christian theology, including getting hired to teach at a you know, majority white school after getting his PhD. Cohn got to the top of the academic mountain, more or less, looked around and realized, for me, for him, there was nothing at stake in European theology. He realized, wait, it just doesn't matter to me whether Bart or Harnack was right in their debate about the meaning of revelation. He realized, I wasn't ready to risk my life for that. That's That's a lot, especially after just completing and doing everything it takes to get a PhD. In contrast, what was really resonating with him was the Black Power Movement. And he said he realized profoundly, I was ready to risk dying for Black dignity. And how much better, though, to live for Black dignity, which is how Cohn spent the remaining five decades of his life. Especially after the Newark and Detroit racial justice uprisings in the summer of 1967, Cohn found that for him, there was no turning back. The die was cast. And in June of 1968, the final, um, what finally broke the camel's back, so to speak, was Dr. King's assassination. Two months after that, he felt compelled to start writing just sort of in this passionate um, fury what became his first landmark book. Black Theology and Black Power, published in the year of 1969. He quickly followed it up the next year with a sequel, A Black Theology of Liberation. These two books, many other to follow over the years. Some of you remember in January, we looked at his book, Martin and Malcolm in America. He built a powerful case that authentic Christian theology is always in alignment with the liberation of oppressed groups. And here's where widening the circle comes in. It would have been enough If Cohn had spent his career, he could have done this, writing out of the black male experience. But he remained remarkably open throughout his long career as a distinguished professor of systematic theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York City to widening his circles of care and compassion and inclusion. I'll give you just three quick examples, and I invite you to consider parallels in your own life. First, Cohn came to realize that his Black liberation theology was too focused on the United States and it failed to account for related liberation theology movements in Latin America. 
To widen his circle, he invited the Peruvian liberation theologian Gustavo Gutierrez to co-teach a course with him at Union on theology from the underside of history. Cohn also invited Paulo Freire, a Brazilian author of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, another powerful book, to write the preface to, 19, to the 1986 edition of Cohn's book, A Black Theology of Liberation. Cohn literally gave the first word to the perspective he had previously neglected. It's a powerful example. Second, Cohn realized that his work had failed to account for the insights both of feminist theology, which tends to center the experience of white women, as well as womanist theology, which focuses on black women's experience. Through reading womanist theologies, such as Dolores Williams' classic book, Sisters in the Wilderness, Cohn changed his theology of atonement. As with many male theologians before him, he had overemphasized the lone figure of Jesus's suffering on the cross as central and salvific. Instead of emphasizing what he came to do is that what saves us or not is whether your life is dedicated to social justice, of which Jesus's life is one powerful example. Finally, there is a story that parallels the anger that Cohn felt as a seminary student when his white Christian history professor was oblivious to the black experience. The difference in this version is that Cohn in this case is the oblivious straight professor oblivious to the LGBTQ plus experience. 20 years after Cohn was the one yelling at his professor, Cohn himself was teaching a foundations and uh, Christian theology class when a gay student yelled at him. Dr. Cohn, you don't know a bleep damn thing about the gay experience. That's a lot, and it would have been understandable if Cohn had reacted harshly. But unlike his own professor, who did react poorly at first to Cohn's accusations of racism, when Dr. Cohn was accused of heterosexism, he was able to draw on that own experience to relate to this student, to widen his circle of concern and affirm this student's protest. He said to the student, you know, you're right. And he confessed, I do have a lot to learn in some areas. Most importantly, he added, and if you get nothing out of this sermon, I think this is worth your time. He said this, your anger is how theology begins. It starts with anger about a great contradiction that can, can no longer be ignored. You must use it to speak, speak out and to write as creatively as you can about the fire that's burning in you. Go to the root of your experience and articulate what no one can express except people who hurt like you. He said, that's what I did. And he said to the student, you can do it too. The beautiful epilogue is that student went on to write a doctoral dissertation on the gay experience and echo justice and is a prominent social justice activist today. So it's something for you to think about on this Easter Sunday. What is making you angry today? How can you write and act creatively out of that? What is that hurt that um, can be expressed by no one but you that you can use to eventually help heal the world for yourself and others. But I would be remiss if I stopped there because the legacy of James Cone is still very much playing out today in ways that are not always realized. There are many examples we could explore among the huge numbers of people that Cone mentored <clears throat> and influenced over the years. But one of the most interesting is the Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock, the recently elected United States Senator from Georgia, who was born in 1969, the same year that Cohn published his landmark book, 
black theology and black power. Cohn was Warnock's doctoral advisor at Union when he earned his PhD. In turn, when Cohn was dying in 2018, he asked Warnock to deliver his eulogy. And let me pause here to highlight just a few of the powerful historic echoes. Since 2005, Raphael Warnock has been the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. That's where Dr. King, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was co-pastor in the final decade of his life from 1960 until he was killed in 1968. And when Warnock ascended to the pulpit at Riverside Church in New York City to deliver the eulogy for James Cone, he was again standing in the footsteps of where King on April 4th, 1967, one year to the day before he would be killed, where Dr. King delivered what may be his most important sermon titled Beyond Vietnam. Those of you looking closely will notice Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel on King's right. I should also emphasize um, this close-up of Dr. King preaching does not capture the architectural grandeur and the vast Gothic interior of New York's Riverside Church. I encourage you to visit uh, if you're ever in New York City. Plenty of us can go anywhere again, we're hoping. And as Warnock took on the task of speaking to Cohn's life and legacy, he was aware of those profound historic resonances. At the heart of his eulogy was that Cohn's legacy is truth-telling telling your truth, not just black truth, telling your gay truth, telling your straight truth, telling your woman truth, telling your whatever, whatever truth. And this is what Warnock said. He says, we need that today. Truth telling amid the mendacious character of hegemonic power as it destroys the earth, tells lies about oppressed people and lies about people of color, lies about the poor, lies about women, lies about our LGBTQ plus siblings, lies about a white Jesus and a male God. And if a nation keeps on telling lies about itself, it will eventually elect a liar in chief. And one of the most bold ways that Warnock has lived out that legacy was during the 2008 presidential campaign when Warnock refused to denounce Reverend Jeremiah Wright after the video of one of Wright's post 9-11 sermons was taken out of context with no appreciation for the legacy of black liberation theology. As you may recall, the Obama family had been members of Trinity United Church of Christ. That's an 8,000 member congregation um, in Chicago where Wright was the minister. Cone was a huge influence on Jeremiah Wright. And during the controversy, Warnock said publicly, we celebrate Reverend Wright in the same way that we celebrate the truth-telling tradition of the Black church, which when preachers tell the truth, very often it makes people uncomfortable. So I begin to move toward my conclusion. I need to add one more important part of the story. After the retirement of Jeremiah Wright, the new minister at Trinity UCC is the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III who was born in 1970, the same year that James Cone's A Black Theology of Liberation was published. It's so fascinating to see Moss and Warnock you know, being born into this world that James Cone helped create. Um, Otis Moss III's father was Otis Moss Jr. He worked with Dr. King in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He's the one that took over as minister at Ebenezer Baptist in Atlanta after Dr. King's assassination. I know this is a lot like tracing these various strands, but I really want you to get a sense this morning of James Cone's life and legacy and how the way it connects back to Dr. King, Howard Thurman, so many others forward to Senator Warnock, Reverend 
um, Moss, Dolores Williams, so many others. It's such a vivid manifestation of what our UU seventh principle calls the interdependent web of all existence. As Dr. King said, in a real sense, all of life is interrelated. All of us are caught in this inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I want to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. That is why none of us will truly get free until all of us are free. So the reason I particularly wanted to bring up Reverend Moss is to give you another profound example of how James Cone's legacy is continuing to play out. Remember that um, Cone's father had been threatened with lynching for trying to integrate their school in the early 1950s. And in 2011, Cone published another in a long line of powerful books, this one titled The Cross and the Lynching Tree, talking about the parallels between, you know, uh, the cross as the death sentence, then lynching as a death sentence. Now you can look at parallels to the hypodermic needle, to the electric chair. Uh, so let me stop my share there because I want to give you um, one quick clip. This, uh, I would like to invite you to watch just a brief two-minute clip of Reverend Moss preaching a sermon inspired by Cohn's book after the tragic killing of Ahmaud Arbery in, German, in Georgia. This sermon is a powerful example of Black liberation theology today. <laughs> 